here respected. Expert level information, entertainment, education. Rev here, we got you covered as you hit your destination. Climate rules everything around me. Dream. For those who lost focus, close your eyes and just dream. Open your third eye, now the world is your office. Coolest, coolest show you know the hip hop chorus. Man, I am so excited to be with my dear brother, Dr. Michael Dorsey. He is just an amazing brother who has done so much for our movement. Dr. Dorsey, my brother, how are you? Rev, it's a pleasure to be with you this morning. It's always a pleasure to be on The Coolest Show. You know, I I love what you've been doing for decades, year on year, month on month, quarter on quarter, day on day, hour on hour. And I could find no better time, no better place to be than with you on The Coolest Show. My brother, well, that goes likewise, man. You know, I I circle dates. Well, you know, we have some of the most amazing guests on The Coolest Show, primarily because they are from the Black, Indigenous, Women of Color, Leaderful Movement uh, that we call our climate movement. And, you know, I circle this date because I knew I was talking to you. But I see you often. I mean, we are on a number of advisory boards together, and we do stuff together. And we actually, we used to travel together doing tours and that kind of stuff. So we we, we might get into a little bit of that. But this is, obviously, Doc, I know the folks want to hear from you um, because you have so much to say. And I know they, if if they don't know, uh, this is going to be a conversation that they probably are just listening to with, just bated breath. So off the jump, for those who don't know, who is Dr. Michael K. Dorsey? Well, Rev, I'm first and foremost, I would say, a scholar of the movement for climate and energy liberation. Uh, during my day job, I'm now an active investor, energy investor, working fully to install solar PV uh, around the world. Uh, We've got our biggest developments in Europe now, but also uh, before the pandemic and and when things become a bit more reasonable, uh, we're going to be back uh, in the subcontinent, uh, particularly in Southern Africa, in the Southern Africa region. Uh, We've been building solar also in South Asia uh, and in East Asia. And really trying to connect uh, our people first and foremost with both the green job side, but also put our people squarely in the decisions of large capital investments. Uh, And to that end, me and some colleagues uh, have put together something called Black Owners of Solar Services, Mm. uh, an effort that's really going to do just that and put the Black community that's already surging ahead, uh, already putting solar in the ground quietly, slowly, and surely, and has been doing so for years. But the Black Owners of Solar Services is an effort to bring together those amazing forces uh, in the form of a trade association, in the form of a fund. Uh, We've got great uh, resources, the, the minds of folks like uh, Nicole Cedaraman, uh, Walter McLeod, uh, Jula Olto, uh, and, and many others that are involved in that effort. And we're going to basically make front and center 
the things that we've already been doing in our community for really not just decades, but really coming into centuries, building our community with integrity, with seriousness, with professionalism, uh, doing it with uh, the key resources that we've always had that have always been president, present in the Black community, uh, and doing that at scale that's not just domestic, but that's truly global. Um, and we're going to be doing that as we push and lead this country into the energy transition. And we're going to be doing that uh, to protect also our communities that are on the front line and the fence line of petrol racism, whether that be from uh, the collapsing uh, activities of ExxonMobil, uh, or whether that be from uh, those pipelines that you're certainly familiar with, uh, the now closed down Keystone XL fiasco, uh, that some lackluster leaders had the audacity uh, to dare uh, say was something that should go through. And those lackluster folks include the likes of Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, and, and George Bush number two. And they were dead wrong because the project is dead and the people have made it so. So that's what we're on about. That's what I'm on about. Doc, you said so much there that I, I have to unpack. So let me just start with this. I had a, here at the Coolest Show, we have a producers meeting uh, with Cross and Destiny and your good friend, Tamara Tozo Laughlin, who's also one, of, also one of our producers. And I was, we, I was telling them that, you know, Dr. Dorsey is a renaissance man, you know, and they all disagreed. There was no disagreement in that. Uh, to what you do. And so I want to start here then. You have been in the academy, um, done well in that arena. Obviously, you've, you're from Detroit, so you've been in the streets and you continue to uplift that. And I've been with you um, and around your your family um, in in Detroit on a on personal level. Um, and now you're working and you've been within the climate movement as well. So the activist side. Um, and now you're within the, you're balancing also with the opportunity for the corporations. So you, you have the Avenue, you have the Academy, you have, and you have the access. And so why, why now the access? Why is that same? That's important because a lot of young folks listen to the coolest show. Why, why would that, why is that the, the, the way you're going and are you abandoning the other ropes? Are you abandoning uh, the movement? Are you, not, I won't say abandoning. Are you just saying, are you, why the access? I'll just say that. I don't, I don't want people to think that, I know you're not abandoning any, anything or anyone. So I, I just want to make sure that, you know, I just want to know why this is as a solution. And, and is this the solution? I know your time is very, very tight. So why would this be where you would put a lot of your time into? So Rev, you know, we're in a moment where our people, our community, black community, black and brown folks have to be at the center of several streams, at the confluence of many mighty rivers. I'm certainly by no means only on one stream. I never have been, never will be. My philosophy has always been and always will be, we have to do several things at the same time. We have to, and you know, you know me, I will always be the one 
holding those in power, no matter where they be, no matter who they are, no matter what color they are, no matter how big or small their wallet may be. But to the extent that they're in power, I'm going to be focused on holding them accountable. At the same time, as we do that, I think there are lots of venues and and ways in order to do that. Certainly, first and foremost, uh, it is, and I'm going to be at the front and center of enabling those that are in the streets, many brothers and sisters, not just proverbially, but literally friends and family that are in those streets grinding seriously. I'm going to make sure that they have the power and the resources to hold those, as you like to say, in the suites accountable. And that will certainly mean sometimes being on the money side of transactions. Those transactions that we're doing now on my business side are completely focused on the renewable energy revolution that is literally surging across the planet. We spent most of our time in Africa, working in Europe, working in Asia, in part because folks here haven't really been at the cutting edge. You know, we we heard the president and many of my fellow peer environmentalists were, you know, clapping their hands merrily when he told us that he would double the commitments to tackle the unfolding climate crisis. The reality is, is that doubling is not enough. And most of those folks that were clapping their hands know that. Um, The reality is when you look, even in Africa, they're doing not just doubling, they're looking at tripling and quadrupling efforts. Mm. So we can't be fooled or tricked by schizophrenic leaders, whether they be called Joe Biden or Donnie Trump or anybody else. We got to be focused on really what is absolutely fundamentally required in our community. And what is required is true leadership, leadership that is not double speaking, that is not uh, giving out permits to drill oil and gas in the Arctic National Wildlife or in the Arctic uh, one week, and then deciding to block the drilling in some parts of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in the next week. That's the last two weeks of the current administration. Duplicity, schizophrenia. I'm never going to be about schizophrenia. I'm never going to be about policy schizophrenia. I'm never going to be about duplicity to our people, to our community. And that means working on several tracks at the same time. That means working on the track to hold leaders accountable. That means working on the track to make sure that we got the capital in our communities that can deliver the projects that benefit our communities. That means working with people in the streets that are on the margins and have been pushed to the margins because of those that are doing that duplicitous schizophrenic policymaking. So I'm about a more comprehensive project and program, and I'm always going to be about that, and I'm always going to be looking for those that are about that. I want to unpack that. That's such an important piece. Um, Before I get to that question, I just really need for you to give the audience your credentials. Uh, talk a little bit about your, your 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 learning and what you what you did in the academy, and where you've worked. Well, I began just like a great many, no doubt, of your listeners, in the public school system of Detroit, Michigan. Uh, fully in the public school system, 
had the privilege of, you know, doing my whole, you know, elementary, high school and public schools uh, in Michigan and also in Ohio, uh, was lucky enough to graduate high school um, and then go on to university, uh, started at the University of Michigan, went on to Yale, uh, went on then to the Johns Hopkins, came back to the University of Michigan, uh, got the PhD from University of Michigan, uh, started my academic career at Dartmouth, uh, spent almost uh, 15 years there, uh, went on to Wesleyan, have had a wonderful opportunity to uh, teach at other institutions uh, around the world, across the country, uh, as visiting you know, faculty and so forth. Uh, so really have had a career, early career rooted uh, in an academic context. But uh, actually, that academic career, you know, particularly as an undergraduate, uh, didn't begin really in environmental policy work, as it were, but began in engineering. So some of my earlier stuff was actually, you know, in the engineering, you know, mold, as it were. My first proper job with a, with a salary, as it were, was working at NASA. Uh, at the Jet Propulsion Lab, you know, way back in the day, late 80s, early 90s. Um, so I, I have, you know, spent time in the academy. Uh, and as a result of that, really approach now the business work that I'm doing uh, in renewable energy and investing in energy and investing in the environmental social governance space, as it were, some people call it ESG, uh, investing in that from uh, a learned position from a position where we're doing deep due diligence, deep dives on the projects and the processes before we decide to, you know, make investments, uh, you know, and, and so forth. So, you know, my, my training as a scholar informs the way I approach the business world. And it also informs the way I navigate between the advocacy world that I'm certainly still involved in. I'm sitting, you know, on the board of the Sunrise Movement on our C3 board, uh, was the co-founder of that shop, uh, serve as the treasurer, also sitting on the board of the Michigan Environmental Council, MEC, up in Michigan, still absolutely committed to uh, delivering uh, not just Detroit, not just the metropolitan Detroit, but my home state of Michigan from the tyranny of sustained environmental racism, sustain uh, energy injustice, sustain monopolist activities of wayward utilities that don't want to guarantee clean, green, safe energy in our communities, don't want to really ramp up the pace on delivering renewable energy in our communities. We're going to keep holding them accountable. So it, it's that cross-section of coming up as a scholar in the scholarly tradition, in the tradition perhaps almost like a Cornell West of public intellectualism, uh, trying to take the deep scholarship to the streets, as it were, to people in the community in a, not just a monologue, but in a dialogue and in a conversation. That's my background. And then taking that into the business world. Yeah, no, I wanted people to hear that. I think it's important to know how, well, one, for me, how much you have been a, let's say, distinguished advisor for the Hip Hop Caucus, and you and I have had many, many conversations. So I want I want folk to hear the that this is that you have gone through um, all of the traditional channels, uh, you know. And I liked how you put that earlier with the public school process. But you've gone through all of the channels that you needed to do 
to get to a point. That leads to this question, though. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you could have very well suited to grab the handkerchief and place it delicately on your head <laughs> if you wanted to. You, you could have done that. You could have, you could have put, you could have eaten the cheese on sticks. Uh, at the galas and hung out there, and you could have you could have gone to the academy, and but you have spoken out. You have spoken out. As long as I've known you, you've spoken truth to power. You've called this, to put it quite bluntly, just to give you the least the, the the license here. You you said bullshit when they when when you needed to say it. Um, I, I bring that up for this reason. Um, yeah. You mentioned the situation with Barack Obama mm-hmm. and many others in the Democratic Party. Um, and I know you know that I've been uh, arrested quite a few times in front of both Republican and Democrat. Yes, um, indeed. But the thing that you have brought up is that you have spoken truth to power to folks that are supposed to be on our side. How dangerous is it when this leadership you talk about, this schizophrenic leadership, is in positions of power in our movement? Well, you know, just to answer that question directly, it's very dangerous. It's dangerous to communities. It's dangerous to our leaders. It's dangerous to uh, the individual on the corner, on the Ave, as it were. Uh, It's dangerous to our grandmothers, to our aunties, to our uncles, to our granddaughters. You know, it's it's exceptionally dangerous in part because of the deceptiveness of it. You 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 want to believe that somebody on your side has totally got your back, but you know you you look to you know the examples abound; they're all over the place. You know, you, you know me; I, I'm not shy of, of naming the names. No, no, you, you're you not know. shy. You, 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 you know, I used to serve on the board of the Sierra Club. You know. And served on that board, you know, over several terms for a total of almost 11 years. Uh, just recently, you know, to take a good example, you know, that operation, um, they blocked some of the current sitting board members from diving into some of the aspects of environmental racism. Mm. Uh, former president, uh, one of the, well, the first black president of Sierra Club, Aaron Mayer, a good friend of mine who's still on that board now. He was putting together a piece, uh, unpacking some of the, the darker history of the club and calling into question some of the current management. He was blocked. So we have examples, example on example, you know, whether it's in a small group like the Sierra Club, whose budget is not even as big as the Boy Scouts. So, so let's not over, over uh, you know, state their, their impact. Let, let's keep it real. Or whether it's in the White House, where we have oftentimes, have those that have the D in their name, ostensibly the biggest and baddest supporters of our communities, not fully delivering on our communities. You could have had no further, no more, no greater hijinks than former Barack Obama traveling to my home state and uh, claiming to drink Flint water as a stunt. You could have no more affront to those folks in Flint, just miles from my family in Detroit, a city where my sister used to work on TV. She was the anchor. That was one of her earlier jobs. She, she's now anchor, uh, you know, at, uh, at, at, in D.C. 
um, on the, I'm going to forget the call sign, uh, but the local, <laughs> the local affiliate in DC, but one of her earlier jobs was in Flint. So y- y- the audacity of somebody talking about audacity and, and hope going there and doing stunts as an affront to people's lives that had been affected by, in this case, the poisoning of water uh, that uh, has recently found some people uh, guilty of felonies and misdemeanors. That's right. So sometimes this chicanery, this hoodwinking, this you know showboating by our leaders, whether they be black, white, brown, or otherwise, it is indeed can be fundamentally dangerous. And we have to hold those individuals that are on our side, so to speak, as accountable as anybody else. Nobody's above the law. Nobody's above right and wrong. Nobody's above honesty, integrity, and seriousness. And everybody ought to be held account to that. Amen uh, to that. There's no doubt about that. That, that, is, that, that is key. I mean... Uh, so let me let me move on. Uh, I want to. We got. So I got so many questions for you. Just in general, that I just want to make you have to give your opinion on a lot of these things that are happening now con- currently. Um, but I, I one last piece on that. On uh, you know, it, it was a little shocking to me that this administration um, that has been putting people in positions and thank goodness for that from um, their uh, White House Environmental Justice. Uh, council and they've been hiring people and putting folks in those positions. Um, that's all good. I mean, you know, we want that. Uh, but on the other hand, I was shocked that when the rubber hit the road with the uh, with the the Senate and folks on the other side pushing back, I was shocked to be to hear Gina McCarthy, who've been on who's on who's been on this show. Um, and I hope she comes on again. We can talk about it. Uh, you know, literally almost throughout climate out of the infrastructure plan um, with, without hesitation. Like it was like, it's almost like she had a puppy that was peeing on the carpet. And that she, and I'm, I'm like, she was like, get rid of this puppy. And I don't, and she was like, well, and I was shocked. I'm like how we, we, we out here fighting to avert the climate crisis with our lives. Like we literally willing to give our lives up to fight for the next generation and for the now generation. And you 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 threw out that and then met with the American Petroleum Institute the very next day. That's exactly. that's that's that was while it was on the same day that we had the victory, well, the final victory for Keystone. That's the real piece of this, Dr. Dorsey. How are we actually going to win this if folks are playing games with this crisis? Well, we're going to have to go around the slow walking, double speaking, Gina McCarthy's, who, you know, I certainly appreciate her as a former administrator and she's done a lot of tremendous things. But when people are slow walking overtly in our faces, they need to either be replaced and or they will have to be gone around. And I I think that that kind of challenge, it's not a, a difficult challenge. For some, it is. But for those that are serious, it is indeed what must be done. I mean, what's shocking about all of this, you know, really, is that in this example, the other side taught us no negotiations with terrorists. Mm. That's what George Bush's daddy used to say. We do not negotiate with terrorists. So the idea that a sitting president 
would sit down and attempt to negotiate with those that do not even recognize his presidency is tantamount to negotiating with terrorists. And indeed, those very same terrorists that, that several of those members on the other side of the aisle of the current president that he's been negotiating with, they led not just an insurrection, but essentially the felonious murder of Capitol Police officers put this city at a tremendous amount of risk. Walk around D.C., go to some of the restaurants, even to, to that donut shop that he went to and to these other places. We, we, we saw uh, Vice President uh, not too far away in the DuPont Circle, Columbia Heights area. And I know a lot of your listeners are in the D.C. area because you're on D.C. radio, Rev. You can go to coffee shops and restaurants in this town and learn from people that they were indeed terrorized by white racists that came here to attempt the insurrection. People were on pins and needles as KKK, neo-Nazis openly marched through this town. So the idea that a sitting president would condone, would engage in negotiations with terrorists, it is not just mind-boggling, it's fundamentally, I call it, anti-democratic. Mm. It's absolutely unnecessary when he's in the majority, even though it's slim. This kind of, it's, it's, a, it's a mark of tomfoolery, really. That really, if we're going to be serious and accept the fact, as he does, the science of the unfolding climate crisis, if we're going to accept the fact of the extent of, you know, a relatively mild pandemic, let's call it what it is, but still with catastrophic impacts worldwide. When we realize the intensity and the severity of our problems, we can't spend weeks on end negotiating with charlatans and with bona fide terrorists because the outcome of that is known. It's textbook. They're going to water down. They're going to reduce the impact. They're going to derail. They're going to defang. They're going to make impotent if not try to cancel fully your initiatives. It goes without saying that that's the case. And that indeed is what's happened. So that kind of stuff, that kind of tomfoolery is stuff that thankfully, because folks in our community are fighters to the end. We, if we're going to go down, we're going to go down fighting. And so then we have to pivot around tomfoolishness, chicanery, hoodwinking, to get on with the real work. We got to keep the pressure on places like the city of Flint and the governor of Michigan. We got to keep the pressure on other places to keep up really getting and tackling these problems that we face with seriousness, with aggressiveness, with expeditiousness, with being expeditious to really, really move uh, ahead of these problems. And if folks are going to clown on the sidelines, let them. We'll see them in the ballot box at the next go around. Hmm. In your perspective, what are the dangers of a U.S. centered just transition or one that doesn't center how black people show up around the world? You know, I wish there was a U.S. centered just transition. If you remember earlier, in the show, I, I said that really the U.S. is lagging behind, not just on just transition, but on any kind of energy transition, 
just or not. It's lagging behind on just the beginning of the transition. Right now, the leaders are in Europe, in Asia, in Africa. They're not here. Hmm. You know, the bigger projects, you know, my firm is a small to medium-sized company. We're dealing with, in our small to medium-sized you know, enterprise, maybe more medium than small, we're looking at a three gigawatt, 3,000 megawatt portfolio. Is any of that in the United States? Well, just over a megawatt is. Hmm. But the other supermajority, it's not here. And why is it not here? Because this country is lagging. It's not leading in this transition. In my home state in Michigan, I, I wrote a piece in the Crane's business uh, paper a few weeks back, and now almost a few months ago, now a couple of months ago, about why Michigan need to, needs to pass legislation and should pass legislation to increase the distribution of renewable energy in the state. Right now, Michigan has a cap on the cleanest, most financially viable form of energy generation on earth, renewable, solar and wind. They have a cap of 1% of the mix. Wow. You couldn't have more foolishness. We, we, you know, than that, the, the state is capping the cleanest, cheapest form of generating power at 1%. That's called not leading. That's called foolishness. Not even, that's not even called lackluster leadership. That's called asinine behavior. You know, so I wish we could say there was U.S. leadership on a green transition. Right now, Europe is far out ahead of us. Right now, the demand for renewable energy is massive across the continent in Africa. It's massive. Right now, the, the president, the prime minister of India has uh, uh, targets many, many thousands of megawatts more than we've even begun to have a conversation about in the United States. We're not leading anymore. The past presidency, that cacistocratic nonsense that we saw of charlatans and clowns put us in a deep, deep hole, a pothole of humanity. They messed up so much in this country, but they actually were able to do that because they were already leveraging a broken system. And we saw the, the dark face of that broken system take the lives of black and brown people in Washington, D.C., where many of your listeners are, but in my hometown in Detroit, in your old hometown of New Orleans, and across this country from San Francisco to Staten Island, from Florida, Miami, all the way up to Portland, Oregon, and every point and spot in between, we saw the broken public health system, not even broken. I think it's, it's, it's actually uh, uh, rich to call it broken. The essentially non-existent public health system take the lives of black and brown people in such a way. The, that last clowning administration leveraged the broken systems to drive us further into the hole, to make it such that America is not leading on much anymore. Now, that's it. People still got some hope on us. We still got stuff to do here. We still got a surge ahead. But that reality means we can't have a current administration negotiating with terrorists. We're not allowed to have that because we don't have time. We don't have the luxury to pretend we're in the lead anymore when we're hmm. not. Hmm. So, so with that as a backdrop, then, then how, how can the global South um, – uh, and what are the most important areas and issues that the global South 
can need to deal with with this current administration then? You know, I think there's several things, you know, uh, in the developing world, in Africa and Asia and Latin America, uh, the U.S. has largely, uh, I won't even say abdicated responsibility, essentially gone dark, you know, and I think we're seeing. What do you mean when you say that? Well, we left the building. You know, you know, like they say that, you know, the, the kids, the young folks say Elvis left the building. Well, the U.S. left the building. We left the building on Africa. We're not investing in Africa. We're not uh, putting any uh, serious amount of overseas development assistance to countries in, across the continent in Africa. We're not working with partners, even in our own backyard. You know, th there was a, the, the Monroe Doctrine that we were sort of king of this hemisphere. We're no longer doing that. We just saw Vice President Harris go down to Central America and essentially clown. <laughs> Even folks in the White House said they were perplexed by her clowning. She literally, the, the daughter of immigrants, spoke to potential immigrants and suggested that they not come here. You could have no more clowning than that. An immigrant telling people not to come here. That's called clowning. That is, the, that is a predicament that's not, I would say, only her doing in fairness, but that's a predicament of literally year on year turning into decade on decade of abandoning, abandoning our responsibility to folks, not just in Latin America in this hemisphere, not just to folks in Africa, not just to folks in Asia, but to folks, black and brown folks all over the global South, as it were. We are not on scene. You know, we had a, a of a nice nameplate effort in Africa on renewable energy under the, the Obama administration called Power Africa. Unfortunately, a lot of that was double counting our investments, not making new investments, doing more promotional hold, things. Hold on, hold on, Doc. Hold on, Doc. You can't <laughs> slide that with You said, <laughs> yeah. Get back to that nameplate, Doc. Hold on, Doc. Break, break know, that down, Doc. Look, the U.S., unfortunately, a lot of its foreign policy over the years, over too many years, has been more about showboating hmm. than showing up and delivering results. It's been about propaganda campaigns. It's been about having our name in the paper as opposed to putting money to put investments into the ground at scale that get us out ahead of things like the unfolding climate crisis. L look at our mismanagement globally of the coronavirus pandemic crisis. Now, the president gets a serious nod. This current president gets a serious nod for coming on and aggressively getting out vaccines, ramping up the delivery of vaccines uh, to all the nooks and crannies getting the governors in all the 50 states in a way that that was clearly much more coordinated than the past president. So he gets a huge, huge hat tip for doing that. Getting the message to black and brown uh, citizens, many of our brothers and sisters, about the viability of the vaccine, the appropriateness of it. Delivering that message really, really seriously to get out ahead of the problem here. But wait a minute now. Look around the world. Crisis happening in India. Mm. 
crisis happening in Africa. I got my shot the same day as the president of Mexico. Hmm. In a global pandemic, if the leader of the free world, as we like to call ourselves, this is the showboating stuff. We like to talk that talk. If the leader of the free world is not helping deliver the vaccine around the world, then the global pandemic will come back to this country and take more lives. We like to talk that talk, but we got to walk that walk. And anything short with this global pandemic will cause further catastrophe for our people here, but also for people around the world. If we're going to be serious about a global pandemic, we have to have a global orientation. And we don't have that yet. We talk about that. They're just now making decisions about distributing the, the, the vaccine globally, coordinating that effort. That coordination globally has been lackluster. It has not been fit for purpose or scale at the same intensity as our domestic effort. We live in a global context. That's why we're dealing with a global pandemic. This is not a pandemic down on Southeast in DC. This is not a pandemic over on the east side of Detroit. This is a global pandemic. And the only thing that it requires is an adequate global response. And we haven't led that yet. Let me get your thoughts on this, on this, on this topic while we're here. Um, Africa is, has been and continues to be divided up and pillaged and destroyed. Um, And those of us of African descent and, or even better as Pan-Africanists, um, grieve what while we see this. Um, this America has created AFRICOM, in which they put the the military base there. We've seen China building highways um, back and forth that just come with suitcases of money. Um, there's so much nonsense is going on, and then even within the UN, which I know you work with as well, um, the voices have been muted, even on the climate stage. Um, how do we get that right? Is there a need for us as 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 um, Africans in this country to help with that process? I mean, how do we this? How do we fix it? This is a big situation, but how do we link up with our sisters and brothers on the continent in this moment? So, first, you're absolutely right that while Africa is surging ahead in terms of trying to tackle and get out ahead of the unfolding climate crisis and a lot of environmental problems and, and tackle the problem of, of petrol racism, whether it be from the, the, the bad, evil activities of shell oil in Nigeria uh, or other, uh, the other petrol uh, industrial complex, they're definitely getting out ahead of that. But at the same time, the plunder is continuing apace. Uh, I, I would say to directly answer the question about how can Black and brown folks in this country, Black folks in particular in this country, uh, engage with Africa. I think it's fair to say that Africans are excited, interested, committed, and looking for committed, interested, and excited Black folks in America to work with, to partner with, to strategize with, uh, to do business with to do business, whether it's small, medium, large, whether you're uh, in a small or medium business, whether you're uh, on a corporate board. You know, I, I, I think of, you know, um, you know, groups like Ingressive, uh, started by uh, African-American uh, sister uh, that's U.S.-based, but working with folks on the continent. 
Uh, you know, there's, there's so many uh, different opportunities where folks here in the U.S. are going back. Folks in Africa are doing partnerships. There's a tremendous Nigerian community in Houston, as all the brothers and sisters in Houston know. There's tremendous, uh, you know, Ethiopian, Eritrean diaspora here in D.C., tremendous uh, African diasporas all across this country partnering up. And I think that there is uh, a bona fide desire and interest to keep that going. And I can speak for myself from doing business in, you know, in South Africa, in Namibia, in Zimbabwe, in Zambia, in Botswana. There is, uh, I would say, Africans on the continent are got open arms for all of us uh, and want to increase the relationships, want to make them mutually profitable, mutually beneficial to help both sets of communities. So I think that that's a space and a place where many of us can step up and lead in and are already doing so and can do more of and can use some support from companies here, from the government here. You know, a lot of that overseas development assistance that comes out of USAID could easily be used to support uh, more of those small and medium enterprises that are based in the U.S., owned, Black-owned, uh, owned by folks here to work with folks in Africa. And some of that's happening, certainly. Much more of it could happen. Mm. How do we become owners rather than consumers in this energy re revolution? It's going to be a fight. Mm. It's going to be a fight. Uh, it's going to be a fight in part because, as you know, uh, we lack a lot of capital in our community. Let's just call it as it is. Uh, so to be in that owner position, you've got to get access to cap. Uh, that's by no means easy. It's going to be a struggle. It's going to come uh, as a struggle. Uh, and it will uh, take a lot of energy to get access to capital to, to be in that position. I think one of the challenges on the energy side for this country is we have a lot of utilities that are not just slow walking black communities, black and brown communities to the renewable energy transition that is now the cheapest way to generate power, bar none, and will continue to get cheaper. A lot of those utilities are not only slow walking us from accessing that energy, but they are also, as a consequence of that slow walk, slow walking everybody, mm -hmm. white, black, brown, or otherwise. And that will have deleterious detrimental effects on our communities because we know that greenhouse gases, toxic emissions from fossil fuel activity, from petroleum, from burning coal, oil, and even gas, that has an adverse impact on our community and actually has a disproportionate impact on our community. Our community, we have more incidents of asthma. We have more incidents of exposures to hazardous materials, toxic you know, both liquids, fumes, and so forth. Uh, those things impact our communities, are impacting our communities first and most, and more so. And that's a problem that really, we're only going to get around with a fight. That's a problem that we're going to have to lean in on to bring the fight against environmental racism, bring the fight for environmental justice. Sometimes it's going to be to utilities. It's definitely going to be towards some of those firms that are leading that, that petrol racism domestically. So it's going to be a fight against the bad stuff and a fight for the good stuff. That's how it's going to get done. Hmm. Tell us about BOSS, B-O-S-S, -S, and why do we need to focus on 
moving capital and solutions on clean and sustainable energy now? So Moss, I think, is an effort. Uh, Black Owners of Solar Services, the, the, the full name. It's a multi-pronged effort to provide and create a community um, for Black owners of solar services, but also broadly for Black owners and business people that are in the renewable industry, broadly defined, Uh, not only working on uh, installing solar, but working on financing it, working on the engineering and procurement, working on uh, the finance side of it. Uh, not just the transactions, but working on different kinds of services, whether it be in the renewable energy credit space, whether it be uh, in uh, retrofits, uh, energy improvements, efficiency improvements as well. So really a whole spectrum. Supporting that network of Black entrepreneurs that many of whom have been at this, not just for you know months or years, but some decades now in mm. Been at it for a while. So creating that infrastructure to support those entrepreneurs, we're going to have in New Orleans, in your hometown, you should come down for it. In September, we're partnering with the Solar Industry, or excuse me, the Solar Energy Industry Association, SIA, as they call it, at their coming conference, their big conference, Solar Power International, which is the biggest uh, solar trade show in in the country, one of the biggest in the world. Uh, We're going to be partnering with them to launch. Uh, the the big launch. We had a soft launch of Black Owners of Solar Services uh, in February of this year. We're going to have a big launch of a joint project. We're working on uh, a database uh, of vendors, of diverse vendors. Uh, Many of the boss members are are in that. We're going to have a finance summit all in New Orleans. So I'd love for you to come yeah, down no, I, uh, I would, and, and see this launch. Uh, I'm, and I'm let's vaccinated. do the show. Let's, yeah, yeah. There you go. Me too. Let's do the show live from New Orleans and, yeah. and, and, and meet many of those members. You know, we're really, you know, we're in the hundreds so far and we, we're not even a year old. We're coming up. Uh, we actually, we will celebrate and you should help us celebrate it. We're going to celebrate our first year uh, at that uh, event, the Solar Power International event in New Orleans in September. So please come on down and join us. Well, yeah, let's let's do that. I mean, maybe we can get the coolest show to do a, a town hall. That'd be a, just a wonderful conversation. Absolutely, and meet many of these entrepreneurs, young brothers and sisters uh, from all stripes, all sizes, all over the country, uh, from North Carolina to, to Los Angeles, from Detroit uh, down to Des Moines. You know, so we got, we got folks uh, in the space all over. So one on that, definitely um, count us in here at the coolest show and we definitely will get that out to other folks um thank you we, we think this is just an important work and and actually how how did you get such a clear focus on economics and environment um where, oh, where, where, wow. where have you come from you know i have always been and always will be a student not even a professor a student of political economy I've always been about, you know, as they say on the street, follow the money. Hmm. Not so or, much. Or, or in hip hop, cash rules everything around me. You, you know, <laughs> hey, you Queen, know, exactly. Get you the know, money. You know, dollar, you know, dollar bill, you know, y'all. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, for sure. You know, you know, we, you know, we, you know and, and, but not only for personal gain, mm-hmm. but it, it's my belief 
that, you know, we got to get that bag, no doubt. Let's be real. But at the same time, a great way to understand how society works, a great way to understand how certain processes are at play is to understand not just the politics, not just the economics, but to understand how politics and economics come together to move resources around. And if you, I think, if you understand that, if you have some insight into that, you can leverage not one or the other, not just economics, not just money running around, not just politics. You can leverage that nexus mm. to change people's lives, to improve people's lives, to improve certainly your own life, your own livelihood, but to improve your community's livelihood. If you know, like right now, a few hundred million dollars are coming to Detroit because of the efforts of the president. If you know how to access that, you can do a tremendous amount for people in Detroit, certainly. But where those monies are coming, you know, once we get through these infrastructure bill negotiations, monies are going to go. If you know how to access that, if you know the, both the politics and the economics, you certainly got to know how much money, how much money there is and so forth. But you got to know who's involved in deciding how it's distributed. That's the political end of that. So I've always been a student of political economy because I think that that is, let's call it the secret sauce mm. to improving our lives. No, I like that. Let's talk a little bit about, we, we share, like I said, a few advisory boards and spaces. Um, let's talk about a, As You Sow oh, yeah. um, and what they got going on. And then also just the work of climate and how it's very focused these days on finance and shareholder or investor activism. And after many decades of divestment work happening globally from the apartheid to climate, um, tell our audience why this focus matters. You know, uh, we have many of your listeners, no doubt, know about the, the age-old uh, resistance to apartheid uh, in, uh, you know, divesting uh, and boycotting uh, the old apartheid regime, which is thankfully no more in part because of that. What a lot of people don't know uh, is that the movement to hold shareholders accountable actually has its root in the anti-apartheid struggle. That movement to do that shareholder accountability today, where we want to hold company X, we want to make sure, you know, most recently we've seen in the news, ExxonMobil, there was a big effort to, to hold that board accountable, and that effort is going to continue. The, 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 the recent upside of that push to hold that board accountable uh, saw the seating of three new directors that have more of an environmental uh, and a responsible uh, outlook. And hopefully they're going to be pushing that outlook to change the way ExxonMobil is doing business. But that, that general effort to hold the shareholders accountable, as it were, that's one that's rooted in the, the anti-apartheid struggles. Uh, I think no better organization than As You Sow. Many are leading, but as you saw, it's been at the cutting edge. You and I have been on the advisory board to help them put together their racial justice indicator uh, map, as it were. An effort, I think, is a really timely one. We could have no better uh, a timely effort to begin to not just That's look right. at the environmental uh, impacts of companies, but where are they either leading or lagging on delivering on racial justice? Many of them talk a, a good game. 
you know, after Mr. Floyd was uh, extrajudiciously murdered in the streets of Minneapolis uh, by rogue uh, police and a, and a police state of that city, we saw many companies, we saw many institutions, many universities, uh, many uh, nonprofits, many, many ent entities come out and make, you know, slogans and statements about how appalling that extrajudicial murder was and what they were going to do as institutions, as organizations to make changes inside. The reality is, is that few are trying to track those statements. So oftentimes, just like the U.S. government, a lot more showboating than showing up and delivering. So uh, we need efforts like a racial justice indicator list to track those statements, to make sure that they are more than statements, to make sure that they are delivering for the communities that they are saying they're going to deliver for, and to make sure that they're delivering seriously, with integrity, professionally, and with haste, because racism is real. Uh, yeah. It's absolutely undermining and has undermined our communities. That's why we have, for the first time in the history of this country, the public health experts saying that racism is a threat to public health and it, as well as individual health. That is a, I was even surprised to be perfectly honest to, to hear about that, that statement, that, that recognition, even though I've known that for a long time, but to see that that has made it up into officialdom as it were, certainly is monumental, but then I think gives us a mandate and a rationale and a reason to create indicators and metrics to track what companies are doing to deliver on racial justice. And I've been really proud to be on that committee with you and be yeah. working with you know, our friends at As You So and would encourage your listeners to check out the website. You can get the details there. They've been doing uh, the, the sort of the origination work and it's going to continue and you know, really needs and would love to see more people involved in, in, in helping out on that process. Well, well, Doc, I can't agree with you more. And you know, and as we close out this show, I have to ask you, you know, this wouldn't be the coolest show if I didn't have some, we, we, you know, this, the reading folks will tune in <laughs> each week to the podcast. It's because they know we get, we get real, real. And even though you are like one of my dearest friends, um, and such a friend in the movement, you know, I, I got, and you wouldn't, you wouldn't want nothing less than me to ask you <laughs> one of the coolest shows type of questions. So let, you got to get to it. You got to go let's, for it. Well, let's, let's get it. So I'm going to start off here with first a tweet that came off to center where this is going. So this tweet came from, um, Alex O'Keefe and this is what he tweeted. He says that quote, an organ, he actually qu quoted uh, Kwame Ture, and this is what the quote was, quote, an organization which claims to be working for the needs of a community, as SNCC does, must work to provide that community with a position of strength from which to make its voice heard. This is the significance of Black power beyond the slogan, end quote. Kwame Ture. So my question to you, and one of your thoughts on that, two, do donors, not even a question, donors need to stop scaling up white startups and invest in black 
indigenous, and people of color-led groups. Do you agree with that? And as a longtime architect and supporter of the movement, tell us how you decide who you're going to invest your time in with support, ideas, and networks. So the quick answer is absolutely in terms of should donors and must donors invest in black and brown organizations and must they do it more than they're doing now? Absolutely to that as well. Must they do it in a way that is, I would say, fundamentally accountable to the missions that they claim? Obviously and absolutely on that. Uh, you know, I, I'm proud to be a part of an effort led by a sister that I know that you are good friends with, Sister Danielle Dean, uh, who's been working with uh, another uh, sister, uh, comrade in arms, uh, Ashindi Maxton, mm-hmm. who's been at the front, the forefront of committing and compelling the funders, as it were, philanthropists, donors, to make explicit commitments, um, you know, to support black and brown organizations. So that is an effort that I've been at uh, since before it went public and will continue to be at with those two sisters and, and, and others that are working on that. And it's one that I fundamentally believe in and know that we have to stand behind and stand up for. Uh, I think, you know, Alex's point is on point, but we've got to make sure that we keep, uh, let's say, the veracity uh, and integrity of the point together. Um, you know, we can't be making Twitter slogans uh, when we need to do the hard work of going day by day, uh, day on day, uh, going to the donors, being uh, on scene, being locatable, findable, being in their face day on day. We got to do that hard work. Uh, We can't be sort of just keeping that on social media. Uh, That's certainly a a, a realm. But when we we know that, you, you know me, I'm about the empiricals, I'm about the data. When we look at who's on social media, even though you and I both are, most people aren't. Hmm. So we've got to do that old school work that you'd like to talk about that I love and that I'm a part of and I'm all about. We got to have those in the streets holding those folks accountable in those suites. And that, I think social media is key on that. You, you, you see me on social media, I'm on it. Folks can find me on there. Um, but it requires a different kind of, I think, uh, extra labor of being and pushing these donors. Uh, because they like to put out things on social media that really aren't as sufficiently accurate as the reality. So it's going to be a fight, and we got to be all about that fight to do that. And I think, you know, you and I are all about doing that fight and delivering that fight. No, we, we are. We, we definitely are. This is my last question uh, to you. Uh, what would you say? to the younger version of yourself about the road you're on now? You know, if I could look back, I would say, you know, grind harder, uh, work more aggressively in teams and larger teams, um, really begin 
in a transnational way, uh, more aggressively, um, uh, and also really focus on making sure the resources are on the table first. Um, I think, and some you know, who are listening, who know me, may think that's what I've always been about. But I think in the past, you know, there's a temptation to be wedded to the ideas and to forget that you can't move any ideas without the resources. So I think that I would encourage that younger me to focus first on getting those resources because it is that critical gasoline, as it were, that's going to propel the work, the movement, and is so needed for our organizations, our communities, our people. Dr. Dorsey, that was my last question, but I definitely want to give you the last opportunity. We, we do got a good-sized audience here at The Coolest Show. Is there anything that you want to say to them? I want to just thank you, Rev, for being at the cutting edge of The Coolest Show for so many years, for being an amazing voice uh, for all of our people, for the movement, for climate justice, for doing that, that hard, hard work. And I, I'm just so pleased and grateful uh, to be on here with you and to be, even though we're not sitting in person because of, of, of the, the, the predicament that we're in, the global pandemonium, I, I'm just so pleased and, and fortunate uh, to be on this journey and to have been on this journey and to continue to be on the journey with you, my brother. My brother, likewise. Love you so much. Keep doing what you're doing. Thank you so much. And that's our guest today, the amazing Dr. Michael Dorsey. And I am Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. Thank you, my brother. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think 100 Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people. It's the coolest show you know.